turn in your Bibles, we're going to be continuing in Galatians 3 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23. I'm going to go ahead and read those, and we'll get started. The Word of God says, Why the law then? It was added because of trespasses, having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. Let's pray. Lord, we as Christians this morning, come and we thank you for your law, Lord, that you have given us hearts that love it. You've written it on our hearts. But Lord, before that, it, it served the, the marvelous function of showing us our sin. And Lord, we are desperate people before you, knowing that your holiness separates you from us. And Lord, we needed a mediator, and you supplied the greatest mediator, the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're thankful for him and we worship him this morning. Lord, I pray that this message would be clear, that, that the word would convict, or that we would be quick to listen, or that you would penetrate through all of the distractions and that you would change our hearts this morning through the power of your word. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen. Well, Bart promised the subject last week when he said that there was a question that had to be answered. And that question is simply this, if the law cannot save us and we are cursed under it, then what's the point of the law? I think that's a question that's really important for the church today because in the American church culture, we've really lost the law. We really, that there's, there's two ditches I think that we fall into. One of them is that the law is actually part of an old dispensation that's no longer active and that therefore we can basically ignore it unless it's restated in the New Testament. And that kind of relegates the Old Testament to being a nice collection of stories for us to tell our kids and have the neat little felt board papers and all that kind of stuff to show them, hey, this was Moses and that sort of thing. That's one side is we don't really use the law. We don't understand its purpose. The second ditch we can fall into that I think is actually much more common is this one. And it is the ditch of the Judaizers that we're going to be talking about today. And that's looking at the law through the lens of looking down on others by making some laws more important than others. And strangely, the laws that are more important are the ones that we deem ourselves to be keeping. And the laws that are less important are the ones that we deem ourselves not to be keeping. So they're not very important anyway. What this does is it minimizes grace. It administers grace only to ourselves or functionally disregards it altogether. And that is the problem of Judaizers. So this morning, we're going to talk about why the law. Why the law? And I, I think the thing that came through very clearly to me in study this week was the, the function of the law through the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's promises, to show us what God wants us to know and what he wants us to see. Because the law, above all, the law makes definitions. The law puts things into crystal clear focus, And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at how the law illuminates, and that jumps us straight into the first half of verse 19. We're going to take that because I think it's the main thesis this morning is verse 19a that says, why the law then? It was added because of trespasses. 
You can hear almost the the volley of the argument as the Judaizers are listening, as Paul is teaching the church of Galatia. He's he's teaching them, hey, you're not going to be saved by the law. You need to trust the promise of Christ. It's by grace that you're saved. All the law has done is curse you. And, And through that curse, Jesus was publicly portrayed as being cursed on the tree so that you're no longer cursed. Why are you trying to trust in works of the law to be saved? The law cannot save you. And so the response from the Judaizers would be something along those lines. Well, Paul, that's great. Then what are you trying to do? You trying to tie up all of the traditions and all the law that God gave to Moses and make it meaningless? And so Paul responds in this section. That, that refrain by the Judaizers is one that follows Paul's ministry all over Asia Minor. Because we read in Acts 21 that this crowd is following him around. And as Paul goes into the temple, these troublemakers cry out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches to everyone everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. These are the troublers of the Christians. The greatest persecutor of the Christians in the first century were the Jews. And the reason why was because this was a difficult thing where the Jews had relied very heavily on the promise of Abraham. They were the people of Abraham. They were jealous to claim that they were the offspring of Abraham. And so they were facing, they were, they were placing their rightness with God based on the promise of Abraham. And they deemed that Paul is going around and diminishing or taking away this promise. And they were, to, uh, to bring it into modern parlance, they were hopping mad about that. They were very upset. And so why the law? So Paul's going to answer his question because if true, if Paul is saying the law is meaningless, that is a devastating charge because that makes two-thirds of the Bible obsolete, completely worthless for us. And that's not okay. So Paul answers the question, why the law? It was added because of trespasses. So how does the law show us our trespasses? I think there's two ways this happens. First, the law was given literally in this text. It shows and defines our trespasses. So if you think back to the pre-law period, which is everything before Moses, you had the first murder, which was Cain. So Cain, through his lack of faith, killed his brother because Abel offered a greater sacrifice. The Lord says that he was pleased with Abel because Abel offered the sacrifice in faith, but Cain did not offer the sacrifice in faith. Note this. It's always by faith that men are saved. It's not by works of the law. But because there was not a law to sin against, Cain did not receive the judicial penalty of murder that the law would define. Cain's life was spared. And the reason it was spared is because the law was not there to show the trespasses. In fact, the Lord doesn't say you've broken the law. The Lord says the blood on the ground cries out for your brother. There was a natural law in place that was written in hearts, but it was not explicitly given in a judicial code. But when the law was given to Moses, the law then defined trespasses. It defined transgression. Romans 3.20 says, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We are born sinners. Romans 5 makes that very clear, that we are sons of Adam. And in our being sons of Adam, we are sinners. We don't have to be taught to sin. We do that quite naturally. If you have a two or three-year-old, you know that this is the case. We are not born naturally selfless and altruistic. We are born selfish. And what we do is if somebody takes our toy is we hit them. That is the natural sin of Cain. We will rise up against our brother and we will hit them. But through the law, we then have no excuse because the law defines 
trespasses and it gives us knowledge of sin. Now we know that we're doing something wrong and we can point to the law and know what we did wrong. Romans 4.15 says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Again, Paul talking in a legal sense, a judicial sense. If there's not a law set forth, then there can't be a righteous penalty for breaking that law because it's unfair. It's not just, it's not righteous. We have to lay those things out. Romans 7, 7 says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. That verse is quite famous because what Paul found out was in his pharisaical self-righteousness, Paul would have deemed himself to be a great follower of the law. But when he came to it, he came to that last pesky one of the Ten Commandments, that law that says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or thy neighbor's oxen. And I just, I asked the question this week in study, I asked it to some of the high school students I'm around, would you know that it's a sin to want somebody else's things if it were not for the law? See, that's the one that got Paul. Because what we do in our self-righteousness is we look even at the law, the revealed law, and we say, I don't have any other gods before God. I don't make graven images. I don't take the Lord's name in vain. I honor my father and mother. I keep the Sabbath. I've never murdered anybody. I'm not an adulterer. I don't steal things, and I don't bear false witness. But do I covet? And then once we understand that we do covet, Paul tells us in Ephesians that covetousness is idolatry. So really, when you want your neighbor's stuff, you've broken all the Ten Commandments. Do you understand? Because through that covetousness, what did, what did Cain want? Cain wanted the affection and the approval of God that Abel had had through his faith. And so what Cain did was with the sin of covetousness, he rose up and he murdered his brother. And the law tells us all of this. The law illuminates our transgression. But it gets worse for us. The law doesn't only define our sins and tell us the standard. The law also awakens more lawlessness in us, lest we believe for one second that we are good. It's really like the red button thing, right? Don't push the red button. All you think about as a human being is, I wonder what happens if I push that red button. C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly in The Magician's Nephew, where... The kids go to this dead world called Charn, and there's a bell sitting there. And there's a poem by the bell. It says, make your choice, adventurous stranger. Strike the bell and bide the danger. Or wonder till it drives you mad. What would have followed if you had? So what happens? That bell gets rung. I'm here to tell you. And then when the bell gets rung, all hell breaks loose, right? It releases a witch, it destroys a world, everything bad happens. Why? Because we have to push the button. And Paul told us that. Paul said in Romans 7, 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Do you understand that the law is holy? The law shows God's character. The law shows God's perfect righteousness. The law shows the standard for living. And we, as fallen sinners, see the law, and all we want to do is break it. And when we're told what the law is, all it does is make us want the object of the law even more. That is the situation we have. It's bad news. The bad news of the law is that we're guilty. We're guilty regardless of the law because in Adam we all sinned, and we know that because Romans 2 says that our conscience convict us. Just like Cain knew he did something wrong, 
right? He, he knew he had done something wrong. The reason why is because his conscience convicted him, even though there was not a written law. We today, even when we're little kids, when we do something, even if we haven't been told not to, we hide. I remember specifically when I was a young lad, we had a mulberry tree in the backyard, and that, that thing had all these plump mulberries on it. And I got a ladder out, and I reached up to grab that mulberry branch, and I broke the thing off. And I thought this was a terrible thing. It's funny to think of now, like nobody would care about that. But I thought, man, I've broken this branch off. I'm in big trouble. So what I remember doing was I went into my bedroom and I was looking out the window, waiting for my dad's truck to come up down the driveway. And as soon as his truck came down the driveway, I immediately went and hid under the bed. The reason why was because when I broke that mulberry branch, what I had told my mom when she asked what happened, I said a big cat got on there and broke it off. I was a liar. And I knew enough to know that lying is a sin worthy of hiding under the bed because the justice of a loving father is coming and the discipline is coming. So we know in the law there is bad news that we've all sinned, but we have even worse news. Even worse news than knowing we've sinned is that we know under the law that we are now deserving of the wrath of God because Romans 4.15 says the law brings about wrath. Not only were we guilty, God's angry about it. Did you know this? God makes his creation. He has complete rights over his creation. And when his creation steps out in rebellion and sins against him, it stirs up God's righteous anger. His wrath flows out for sinners. It's in measure. We don't hear that preached often from pulpits in America today where we talk about being broken, making mistakes, and not quite doing things the right way. But the Bible says that our situation is much worse than that. That what we do is we willfully break God's law and we deserve his wrath. And it gets even worse still. Did you know now that we know the law, that we're twice guilty? We broke it, we know we broke it, and now that we have that knowledge, we're held under all the expectation for following the law. Our rebellion is wakened up, it's stirred up, and it's drawn to great strength through the law. It's not the law's problem, it's our problem. The law is righteous and holy, the law is good. I asked an atheist coworker a couple of years ago. I went through the Ten Commandments. I didn't do it in the churchy way. I said, can you imagine a world where all of these things happened? I said, where no one ever committed adultery. No one ever lied. No one ever steals anything. No one's ever jealous for other people's property. I said, what would you call that? Where everybody respects their parents. Her answer was, that sounds like utopia. I said, that's the law. So what's the problem? The problem is us. There is a silver lining. There is a silver lining. Even in the midst of all this bad news, the silver lining is this, is that God, through the law, has shown his divine character. That we, we know more because the law was given. It was a great grace of God. We often hear it called covenants of works. But the law and all the covenants of God are covenants that are born out of God's great grace for sinners. Because for God to condescend and to make himself known is a great grace to his people. So it's God, it's unmerited favor that God told us his law so that he could show us more about himself and his holiness. So there's a silver lining. But there's only one bit of good news for us that can come from this. There's only one bit of good news. And that is that God is going to have to somehow bridge the gap that takes away his wrath and gives us his mercy without interfering with his righteousness. That's the problem. Because God can't simply forgive us. 
that would be unjust because we have sinned and we have broken the law. And God deserves to give us all of his wrath. And the good news is this. It's the only good news. It's the only good news that matters. And that's what we're going to look at as we move through the text. The good news is that God promised to save us from the very beginning. Bart said it last week in Genesis 3. He made the promise, even in the midst of the curse, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But that serpent was going to bite the heel of her seed. We know that that means that that serpent was going to kill her seed. That's what that means. And we saw through the promise to Abraham that his, his descendants were going to number like the stars of the sky and the sands of the beach, and that anyone who blessed him was going to be blessed, and anyone who cursed him was going to be cursed. And we will see today that the only way that promise could have ever come true was through being fulfilled by the seed of Abraham. And that seed, singular, is the God-man Jesus Christ who bridges the gap because he is the only one who could appease the wrath of God in a righteous way because he who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. So let's look more deeply at that. If the law illuminates our trespasses, the law also illuminates the promise of God. Let's carry on. This is a difficult passage. The second half of 19 and verse 20, this gives commentator fits, I can tell you that. It's, it's a tough one. Having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. So last week, last week, Bart argued, and I think the text argued, that the covenant with Abraham had a superiority to the covenant with Moses because it was made 430 years before. There was an idea where this will and testament, you can't come back afterwards and change the ratified covenant and will and testament. The one that came first has the superior promises. It's interesting that the law was added Right? The law was added. The law was added by the promises of God to show more of who he is and to illuminate what was going to have to happen to fulfill the promises. Not to change the promises, but to give us more insight, to give us guardrails, to give us a way to live. And we're going to see much more about the guardrails, I think, next week. Turnabout's fair play, Bart. <laughs> but what we see in this text is another area of the superiority of the Abrahamic covenant. And that is the superiority of less mediators. Okay, so the covenant of Abraham was made first, but the covenant with Moses was made with us receiving it third hand. So think of it this way. We know that the promise to Abraham, Bart went through it last week, that God himself came to Abraham and passed through the birds and the animals that were cut in half. There was not another person in between. And so the recipients of the covenant of Abraham, who Abraham is their head. I know this gets technical, sorry. So there's God. He gives a promise to Abraham. Abraham then gives the promise to all his descendants. Abraham is the mediator of that covenant. But that covenant came directly to Abraham. And so basically Abraham's descendants get the covenant secondhand, but the covenant itself is delivered firsthand. Not so with the law. The law is given to Moses secondhand. It's kind of tough 
But, the, but Paul here assumes, and so we know that it's true, he assumes a situation on Mount Sinai that God himself, we, we like to see it, we think it is God the Father coming down and talking to Moses on Sinai. But that's not the biblical picture we're given because what happened on Sinai was that there was a host of angels that descended on the mountain and those angels gave ministry and gave the message to Moses on the mountain. And so Moses delivered the message to his people third hand. He received the covenant through angels. The angels were the first mediator and then Moses was the second mediator. And that's why that promise is a little bit different. The law is a different kind of covenant. The law is an inferior covenant to the promise of God. Deuteronomy 33 says, Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And he said, Yahweh came from Sinai, and he dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. Hebrews 2.2 assumes the same thing. It says, For if, this, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty. The angels were a true mediator. The angels delivered the message of God completely intact to Moses, and Moses, unaltered, gave that law to the people. And the people said, We will be under this law. Throw the blood on us. We promise that we will follow this law. And that's how the covenant was mediated. Acts 7 says, You received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not observe it. So that is, that is the way that the promise to Abraham is superior in another way to the promise to Moses is that it was delivered directly by God, whereas the promise to Moses and the law was delivered by angels. That's nice. Some nice trivia there, okay? But I think there's something different going on in this passage. I think that's there, but I think the key that Paul has been hitting on throughout this chapter is he's focusing on this seed, the singular seed. And I think, I think the promise here, and I think what's going on in this text that is difficult, I, I, will, I will admit here that I'm stepping out a little bit, okay? Stott, John Stott almost got me there. Luther, he was, we're kind of in this area. I think I feel comfortable in saying, though, that the new covenant from this passage is greater than both because it's the seed of the promise to Abraham. Remember, the Judaizers are saying, you're taking away the promise, you're taking away the law, you're messing with us, you're telling us grace, 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 what about our traditions, what about all this stuff? Well, let's look at the greatness of the new covenant in verse 20, okay? So it says in verse 20 that a mediator is not for one person. So God, God does not mediate covenants by giving a messenger a covenant, and that, and that covenant gets communicated to one person, and it's basically a covenant between two people. That's not the way it works, okay? We even know through the metaphor of marriage, right, that what happens is in marriage, which is a covenant, that is a covenant between two people before God. But the mystery of the church that's shown in a shadowy type through marriage is a covenant between Jesus and the church. The church is the sands of the seashore. There is not one mediator for one person. When God gives a covenant, he gives it through a mediator for a lot of people. So if the angels mediated the law to Moses, and Moses mediated the law to the people, and Abraham mediated the law or mediated the promise to his people, what happens in the new covenant? So if follow me here. If we heard about the law third hand, which was worse than hearing about Abraham's promise second hand, right? What do we hear about in the new covenant? Who is the mediator 
of the new covenant. We know that the mediator of the new covenant is Jesus. So in the new covenant, if the, if the Abrahamic was greater than the Mosaic because of the mediation, the new covenant is greater than both of them because God himself was the mediator and he tells his people firsthand the covenant. We have a greater promise and a greater covenant. It says here that God is one. There's this idea, it's going gonna, it's gonna to branch into another thought, I think, but we also see that he is the one who mediates. He is the voice of the new covenant. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, and he is the fulfillment of the law. He doesn't change any of those things. Notice, the greatest and final mediator, Jesus Christ, does not change the voice of the law because he says in Matthew 5, 18, that not one jot or tittle of the law will change or be passed away until the end of the world. Okay, That's what he says. He doesn't change the voice of the law. We get that wrong in the church a lot. The mediator of the new covenant didn't change the law. The law remains unaltered. But what he did was he fulfilled the requirements of the law. Does that make sense? The law is still operative, but it's operative for Christians through Jesus Christ. The law is fully operative for those who reject the Son. And it has the same penalties that it's always had. And that penalty is death. When Romans says the wages of sin is death, that's a judicial calling. It's saying the contract, the covenant has been made, and the penalties for breaking your end of the covenant is you die. That's a legal statement. The new mediator doesn't change the voice of the law, but he's also much greater than the law. Paul goes on this tangent where he talks about the veiling of the law. The, veil, the, the law illuminates the promise because the law was a great thing that gives way to something that's so much greater. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the consequence of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is brought to an end in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Do you understand? The Judaizers in this passage, they were not Christian brothers. The veil had not been lifted. They were still under the law in every sense of that word. They were still being judged by the law. And yet, in the consequence of that, and the blindness that the, that the hardened heart brings, is they didn't understand the law. While professing a return to the law, they didn't understand the first thing about the law, because under the law, they took the entire curse. And who takes the veil away? When a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. But we know today there is no veil for the Christian, because he goes on. In verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. It's an amazing section. We have this picture on Sinai, right? And there's lightning, and there's gloomy clouds, and there's instruments, and the people would not set foot on the, on the root of that mountain. They were terrified. If you read the second half of Deuteronomy chapter 5, what you're going to see is there's this appeal for the mediation of Moses, and the people keep saying, we, we didn't want to go up there. We're not going anywhere near that. We would die. And the Lord had set a fence around it and said, any animal who steps on this mountain is going to die. 
That's, and there was a veil over them. When Moses came down, they had to put a veil over his face because he was shining with the glory of the Lord and they couldn't bear to look on his face. Friends, do you understand that what's happened in the new covenant is that we're not looking at a third-hand mediator who we can't look at his face. We're looking at the Lord of glory, light to light. The word became flesh and it manifested itself among us so that we would see the exact likeness of the Father. So when Jesus came, what he did is he was the exact image of the Father. He came to earth, he walked among us, and we look on him with unveiled face, and we see something that is a million times more glorious than the law, and we look at it without any shroud between us. Because when Christ died and he said, it is finished, the veil was torn in two, which said there is no barrier of death between us and the holiest place. We can walk into the holiest place with confidence because the Spirit has taken the veil away, and there is no separation now between those who are in Christ and Christ himself. He is the great high priest. He has made a way. He is the great mediator. And we have an amazing thing, and it's given to us through the Spirit. The veil was not taken away by our following of the law. The veil was not taken away through our great understanding of doctrine. The veil was taken away because the Holy Spirit himself, Leviticus 19, came to live inside of us so that we can love one another with the love of Christ. He indwells us. He lives here because, friends, we are holy. We are holy. It goes on in 2 Corinthians 4. It says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Our work as Christians and as evangelists is that we would pray that the Holy Spirit would take the veil away from the people who are around us. We save no one. We are broken vessels that have this message of glory. May we preach it with passion. May we proclaim it with passion, more than we do when the Razorbacks win a football game, which is sweet because it happens so seldom. We forget what we have, and our love grows cold, because we want to put back on the shackles of what we escaped. There's also, I think, an allusion, whereas God is one, to the Shema, which was the prayer that the Jews would recite every day. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh with your, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The people of Israel would pray this prayer daily. They would recite it. They would, as Deuteronomy 6 said, they would teach it to their children. They would put it on their heads. They would put it on their hands. They would put it on the signpost by their doors, and it would be everywhere. And all the while, all the while, they didn't understand exactly how this was going to become. Because if you've ever tried to follow the law, what you understand is that you fall short every single time. Are you, do you in your mind, do you in your heart worship God with the worship that he deserves? Does anyone meet that standard? And the people of Israel would grow cold and they would start to see, Lord, it doesn't look like the promise is coming true because you said that we were going to be a blessing to all the nations and we have no impact on the nations. We're sitting here, we're in idolatry, we're in exile. What are we going to do? And the people in the Pentateuch saw this promise very vaguely. They repeated it, they taught it to their children, they didn't teach it well to their children because their fire went out. 
and they let generations go by where iniquity increased in Israel over and over again. And it looked like the promise of God was going to fail because of the sinfulness of man. And over and over this happened. And we see a passage through the Old Testament where the the promises of God are veiled through Christ in the Pentateuch. We see it here, the seed of Abraham. That's not really all that explicit to them under the law. But then we see by the time Malachi comes around, by the time Isaiah comes around, they are explicitly prophesying about the need for a Messiah to take away their sins. Because what happens is the law had illuminated the need of the sinner for a savior. Because when we're confronted with the law, we look in our own self and we say, I can follow that. I can do that. And as the days go by, we start to understand, no, we're dead in our sins. There's no way we can do that. And we cry out for mercy. And God was willing and eager to give that mercy. Because when the time was right, here comes Jesus, the baby born in a manger, peace on earth, goodwill to men. How can there be peace without following God's perfect law? There will be no peace. It will be elusive. But Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes. Why? Because what he does is he writes the law on our heart so that it can be followed so there would be peace on earth. What the Judaizers fail to understand because the veil is over their face is that without Jesus, even the Abrahamic covenant would have failed. Because the promise of the Abrahamic covenant was the fulfillment of the seed. The promise to Abraham was fulfilled through Christ. Without Christ, it was never going to happen, but that was God's plan from the start. When he walked through those split animals and said, if I, fo- if I fail in this, may that happen to me. The God of the universe saying that to a man, don't miss that. The consequence of that is God knew he had a grand plan in his mind that night when he walked through those animals and his plan was, I'm going to die for you, Abraham. Because as we know, Abraham was a Christian. Why was Abraham a Christian? Because he believed the promises of God, even to the extent that he believed that God was going to raise up his own son when he sacrificed him on that mountain. Isaac himself, Abraham believed, we know in Hebrews 11, that he was going to raise him up. Abraham believed the promises of God. That is how every person that we will encounter in the kingdom of God, when we die, when our, in a twinkling of an eye, when our souls are in front of the Lord, what we're going to see is every single person around us is there because of faith. And the faith that they have is given because the Holy Spirit tore the veil off of them. Because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the wisdom of God and the strength of God to those who are being saved by it. So I think I've probably already trampled on it a little bit, but the law in in point three illuminates the grace of God. It illuminates the grace of God. And I think this is, I think this is an argument that's on opposites here. So, so follow with me. We're going to talk about what the law does and how far grace went. So verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if, the law, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by law. The law is not contrary to God's promises because God himself gave it in addition to his promises. It highlights his promises It shows a pathway for his promises. It also shows the extent of God's mercy and grace through fulfilling his promises when we didn't deserve it. It illuminates the glorious nature of his promises, and we worship King Jesus because of what he accomplished through the law. Do we understand? Grace has no meaning if there's not condemnation. Grace from what? A merited favor about what? We had to have fallen to see God's holy attributes of his mercy and grace. Why did Adam sin in the garden? 
Because he rebelled against his creator. Why does God let men sin? Because the greatest glory and the greatest good on the face of the earth is for everyone to see the true character of God. Is there any good besides God? No, he is good, he defines good. He is righteousness. Who are you, O man, to question? Why do we sin? To show God's glorious attributes of mercy and love and compassion. And we, list, we, we miss it because just like the Judaizers, we think that we can follow the law and we think that we can get so close to being God's ourselves. And what we don't understand is there is a vast chasm between us and God. He is holy, holy, holy. It's the only description he gives of himself three times. And it's because he is perfectly holy, which means that if there is any mar or stain against righteousness, it will not be in God's presence. He is completely separate. He is completely other. His nature has nothing to do with our nature. We are made of dust. God is spirit. We are finite. God is infinite. We are changeable. God is immutable. He never changes. There is no shadow or variation due to change with God. And so his promises, likewise, are unchanging. So God promised to bless the nations. And through Abraham, it looked like it was failing because this was part of the promise, Micah 4, 2. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Does that sound like anything that happened with Israel? Did any other nation come up to the mountain to see how beautiful God's law was? No, it never happened because Israel was sour grapes. They were wild grapes. They were a vine run amok. They were idolaters. But does it sound like that's what happens through Christ? Do people come to see the beauty of God's law through Jesus Christ, the true Israel? They do. We all have. Why are we drawn in here? Because we want to hear the beauty of his law. And we know that the law can't save anyone, although the law is beautiful. Because if the law could save people, that would mean that we are naturally, unchangeably good, or that God is relative and arbitrary in his judgments. And we know that both of those things are not true. So the law can't give life because it wasn't intended to. The law was intended to show holiness. But that holiness is elusive. So what else does the law do? We'll finish out here. The scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. When, when the Bible there says the Scripture has shut everyone up under sin, what that means is God through the Scripture. God revealed through Scripture that he has shut everyone up under sin. Every human being finds himself in prison under sin. We're enslaved to sin, and we're so blind to it that we love our sin. We love being in prison. I think we saw it in the year 2020 as, the, as the, the country has fallen into sinful decay. I don't have to be a preacher of woe to tell you what's readily apparent. The world is dark out there, okay? And what we learned in 2020 is people like being in prison. Was there this great rebellion against having to stay in your home, binge Netflix, look at pornography, and eat anything you want delivered to your door? No, there was no outrage against that because we have, in our godlessness and in our lawlessness, become a people that loves prison. 
Because if you can do it in the confines of an 8 by 10, you're in prison. And the God of this world, Satan, he doesn't care about anything that we accomplish in prison. He doesn't care about our pious prayers while we're in prison. What he cares about is Micah 4.2 not happening. And for that, he has to keep us in prison. And under the law, we're all in prison because God has revealed it. There is none righteous, not a single one, Psalm 14.3. It's not at odds to say that we are in prison under our sin. Romans 5, 20 through 21 says, From the law, now the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the point of this passage? I think Luther sums it up. He says, The principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. That is to say, it showeth unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so to come to that blessed seed. It's all about the seed. It's all about the seed. Romans eleven thirty two. God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Why are we in prison? So that God can lead the jailbreak. He did it with Peter, and he's going to do it again. And for you sitting here who have faith in Christ, he has done it. You're not in prison. So the the argument to the Judaizers, if you're in custody, if you're in jail, under the law, and God busted you out through the seed of Abraham, why would you go back? Why would you go back? And as Bart and I talked last night, I think what becomes clear is that there's nothing to go back to. Do you understand that even even if the Judaizers could go back to the covenant with Abraham, there was no way to because Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant of Abraham. And there's no way to go back to the law because Jesus fulfilled all of the law. We have to go to Jesus or there's nothing to go back to. The only thing you're going back to is damnation. That's it. So don't turn back. Why would you go back into the jail? It's like when Saruman asked Gandalf to come up to the top of the tower after he already imprisoned him. Gandalf says, the one who got in prison doesn't willfully come back in through the front door. Right? What would it be if you walked back into your jailer cell through the front door? That would be stupid. Okay? Don't do that. We don't want to act like a bunch of nut bars here. That's stupid. Okay? Ridiculous. So don't. Don't do that. But let's link the last turn and get into a little application here. I was very afraid of this sounded like a seminary lecture. I'm sorry about that. Here's the deal. What does this mean to us today? First of all, did you know this? Did you know that none of us in here who are in Christ are in this custody? There is no shutting up. There is no detention. There is no total depravity for you anymore. Did you know, Christian, that you are not depraved anymore? You war against the flesh, but God has given you life. So we walk in it. Where the Bible says that none were righteous, notice were. There were none righteous. But what what about now? Jesus has become the just and the justifier. And 2 Corinthians tells us that he has given us his righteousness. You are righteous. You may not feel like it. You may not feel like it. And you may feel like you're still enslaved to those old passions. It might be lust. It might be false witness. It might be covetousness. There's all kinds of things that we fall into the temptation and we feel like, I'm never going to get out of this prison. Oops, there I go. I did it again. This is the 10th day in a row I've done this. I've been enslaved to this for years. How do I get out? Christian, the answer is you walk out. 
You are not that man anymore. You're not that man. All of the promises of God are ours. Their yes has been found in Jesus, and they are ours today. We've looked at the first use of the law today, which is to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. But there is a second use. That law restrains evil around us. We're not going to push that one today. We're going to push here the third use. Gloriously, the third use of the law is that the law teaches Christians how to live. We know how to live, and we can do it. Think about this. You can do this through Christ. Christ has given you this. Psalm 119, I could pick a million verses out of here, but here we go. Verse 13, with my lips, I have recounted all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will muse upon your precepts and look upon your ways. I shall delight in your statutes and I shall not forget your word. Does that sound like you, Christian? If it doesn't, pray earnestly that it would because God has written that law in your heart. And for those of us who are in Christ, we love God's law. And if you don't love God's law, you might not be in Christ. So cry out that God would save you by faith. And those of us in faith, we have a promise. We can do this not because of our own power, not because of our willpower, not because of our rugged individualist dogma, not because of our knowledge of doctrine, not because of our adherence to a church, not because we're all reformed people, even if we're not. Not because of any of those things. We can do this because Jesus has done it. The substance of the blessing. I want, I'm going to leave us with this. It's the last thing. This is the substance of the blessing of Jesus to bless the nations as promised to Abraham. Remember Micah. Remember the promise to Abraham. This is the fulfillment of that. And I'm going to leave it here. Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and upon their hearts I will write them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your, your promises are almost beyond our belief. Lord, as we, we look and we see, as Luther said, that we are broken and bruised, that we are terrified under the law, because we know the penalty. And we know the penalty for our friends and for our family that are not under your grace. So Lord, I pray a couple of things for us as a congregation. I pray first that we would be emboldened with your promises, that we would see their fulfillment in Christ. Lord, that we would walk in them by faith, that we would know that you have made a new covenant with us and that you care for us. And because the Holy Spirit indwells us, we don't have to be taught about who you are, you tell us who you are. Lord, and we don't have to be at odds with your law, afraid anymore, because we have fulfilled the law through Jesus Christ. Lord, where there was complete unrighteousness, there is now perfect righteousness. Oh, what a story that is. And Lord, that's my second prayer. My second prayer is that we would have that joy, understanding that we have been forgiven everything, 
and that we are sons of the king, no longer prisoners, no longer under the harsh treatment of the jailer. But Lord, we've been set free. The jailbreak has happened. And now, Lord, I pray that we would tell everyone. I pray that there would be a zeal in our hearts to tell everyone. Like your apostle Paul did, Lord, as he argued strongly for the faith, he also went from town to town and turned the world upside down, not through his own power, but through his proclamation of the gospel. Lord, how we need to hear it. How those of us who have heard it for years, we long to hear the story and we long to tell it. Because every time it's told, it sounds like the first time. That is the power of your spirit, Lord, how we thrill to hear of your goodness and of your mercy. Lord, may we walk in it. May we be a people faithful. May we trust in your promises. Give us faith, Lord. Help us with our unbelief. Take it away and give us belief in your promises. Amen.